Well, good morning, Greenwich, and welcome to the Wednesday, September 22nd edition of the Basement Academy. Strange things are afoot down here in the basement as my mind is going about three or four different directions this morning. And so um, if it gets a little crazy, feel free just to turn it off, but you might want to listen to the end. <laughs> uh, let's begin with our morning psalm. I'm going to tie something we read here to some news of the day. So this is a psalm of Asaph. God presides in the great assembly. He gives judgment among the gods. Gods is in quote there. How long will you defend the unjust and show partiality to the wicked? Defend the cause of the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the rights of the poor and oppressed. Rescue the weak and needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. They know nothing. They understand nothing. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said, you are gods. You are all sons of the Most High. But you will die like mere men. You will fall like every other ruler. Rise up, O God, judge the earth. For all the nations are your inheritance. Short little psalm. You kind of have to read it to see that God's is in quote. And so it's this, I think the idea, we've talked about this uh, before, that the rulers of this earth, when they gather in whatever form of government they have, whatever deliberative assembly or uh, in, in some um, power structure, uh, authority structure, that there is a God-like quality God has ordained authorities among men, okay? Our, our New Testament scriptures indicate this, that all authority is ordained by God. We can't just run willy-nilly. And so there must be structure, there must be authorities. And so those folks who hold position of influence, who, who have authority, kind of human authority, have a God-like quality. They influence, they shape, they direct their decisions, their actions impact the community. And so they're to behave a certain way, to care for the poor. We live east of Eden, so that, that, that's a given, right? I mean, that we live in a sinful world. God ordained that as well uh, when Adam and Eve fell. And so to protect and preserve human life, the authorities are to um, conduct themselves in a certain way to be about the truth, to be about justice, to be about freedom and the like, to, to, to care and to, to govern and protect the community. But <laughs> that's not what's happening here. Asaph is crying out. It's a prayer in the context of an unjust structure of authority. Okay. And so, <clears throat> so that's kind of backdrop. This is a great psalm to, to have and to pray. Um, Jesus actually cites this in his interactions with the Pharisees. They had responsibility. They had a, a measure of authority, but they were misusing that. And so this is a, a, a psalm or a prayer that lifts up our voice on behalf of the misuse of authority by those who, who are in positions of authority. <clears throat> uh, two stories I've read uh, in the last 24 hours. Um, 
uh, an eminent Princeton historian, Sean Willens, has written a pretty strong essay criticizing, maybe short of condemning, but criticizing the 1619 Project, which uh, was a, a, a project of the New York Times, a series of essays essentially seeking to alter the understanding of American history, that it was in 1619 that we should trace the founding of our nation when the first African slaves were brought to the British colonies. And the 1619 Project uh, asserts without evidence, and so that's, that's where Professor Willens comes into play, the 1619 Project asserts without evidence that the reason the colonists declared independence from the British crown, from, from King George, was not because of tyranny, the taxation without representation, etc. It was because they, again, without evidence, there's no historical evidence for this, but the 1619 Project says that um, the colonists feared that Britain was going to uh, abolish the slave trade. Again, that didn't happen till later. That, that Britain was going to abolish the slave trade. So in order to secure the continuation of the slave trade, the colonists declared independence from the crown and established America solely for the purpose of perpetuating the slave trade. And so Professor Willens says that is a lie. There is no historical basis. There's no credible evidence anywhere. He is now being attacked <laughs> for making these clear historical factual statements. There was no evidence anywhere about that. Now, were the colonists, did they hold slaves? Yes, there's, there's no disputing that, but the reason for the declaration, okay? So that's, that's one thing that's on my mind. And then the other is, of course, the internal memo that has uh, come to light regarding uh, after the uh, election last fall with regard to Dominion voting machines and the like that, that the, the, sadly the Trump team knew that that was, these were not, uh, true allegations. So internally, they all knew, but it was put out anyway. So I'm not trying to make political statements on right or left, okay? Because I just said some news stories <laughs> that one could interpret as being against progressives or conservatives and the like, blue and red. I'm not attacking blue and red. I'm saying humans do these things. So what Psalm 82 lifts its voice about <laughs> continues to be the case. Those who have influence, those who have positions of authority misuse that for their own ends. And so the 1619 Project is teaching an alternative narrative about American history, a, a factual lie. <laughs> okay, so it's a lie that, that the six, what the 1619 Project is saying is wrong. It's a lie. That has already been taught in over 4,500 American classrooms. The curriculum has been developed and it is now going forth that this nation was conceived not in liberty, but it was conceived strictly as a racist uh, expression. And then I 
toss in the other <laughs> notes that have that have come to light in recent days about the internal memo and the, the voter election and the fraud and everything to say that that happens all over the place. People lie. And so that's what Psalm 82 is getting after. And so as we pivot again to talk about if it's not critical race theory, how do we then speak to and address the issues of the day? We do so with the sobering thought. That's why my mind's, I said at the outset, my mind's going in a few different directions here. Um, so I'm advocating this notion of Christians, biblical, okay, this is biblical, right? James and, and Hebrews and, and Peter and Paul, Christians are exiles. We're strangers. This is not our homeland. This is not our permanent home. And so we should conduct ourselves echoing the, the guidance, uh, the instructions of Jeremiah in Jeremiah 29. We should live as exiles in this land. And so seek the peace of the city to which I've called you. Pray to the Lord for it, for if it prospers, you will prosper. Okay, seek the peace of the city. Okay, so I'm suggesting that's the posture that we should take with regard to our culture, we're, we're in the culture, but not of the culture. We uh, live distinct from the culture and its values and its ways and its mores, but we then seek to uh, engage the culture and to seek its peace, okay? So that tension that I say we are called to live. And I think scripture calls us to that. So it's not just me. What is the difference between seeking the peace of the city and seeking the change of the city? Seeking the peace versus seeking the change. Exiles are by definition outsiders, okay? So Israel, when taken captive uh, and, and taken into exile in Babylon, Daniel and his friends, right? And others, many others, they were outsiders to that world. Now, Daniel rose to a position of influence and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were brought into the culture, but they remained outsiders. And so getting tossed into the fiery furnace, uh, getting tossed into the lion's den because they refused to participate in expressions of the culture, that demonstrates. That's that living apart from, though being engaged with. And so exiles are, by definition, outsiders. Now, I recognize that the advocates of critical race theorists would, adv would laugh at me. Here's a straight white male Christian saying that he, that is Don Meeks, is an exile. I'm an outsider to this culture. They would laugh at me. I've actually had similar interactions with folks at my presbytery when talking about raising concerns. And it's like, Don, you've got all the power and privilege in the world. What do you you have no concerns. And so theological concerns can't get raised because of my skin color. Theological uh, objections to, to things cannot get raised because I'm a, I'm a man. Um, theological objections cannot be raised because I'm straight. And so now something else is at play here. When you try to raise a biblical theological concern about attitudes or actions or beliefs, and because of skin color, because of, of sex, because of um, uh, sexual orientation, 
one's theological concerns legitimately raised are dismissed. There's, a, there's something else going on. There's an ideology at work, a, a, an alternative way of looking at life. And so, and so I recognize that I would be laughed off stage, you know, uh, at our presbytery for raising these concerns, which itself concerns me about our presbytery, right? Can outsiders change the system? Should outsiders change the system? Did God call Israel to change Babylon? Jeremiah's letter says, hey, build your houses, plant your gardens, uh, get, 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 get uh, husbands and wives for your kids and let them have kids and uh, you're going to be here for a while, 70 years, okay? Seek the peace of the city. Doesn't say change it. Now, some could interpret seeking the peace means to change it, right? To make it more to their liking. But we have, the, the, Israel did not change Babylon. <clears throat> they hunkered down and they hung in and they formed ways of surviving in this foreign hostile land. And Babylon were the oppressors. Babylon were the ones who came and destroyed Jerusalem. So we have to understand that, right? change of any kind always requires disruption. There is some status quo. There's some prevailing system, okay? Here's how we do things around here. That could be in a family. That could be uh, in, a, in a, a company, an organization. It could be in a church. Um, it could be in a neighborhood. It could be uh, in the PTA. It could be, you, you, wherever humans gather, and then new blood comes in, new people come in. Often new people bring ideas from the outside, bringing ideas of change. Hey, back in the church I used to live in, you know, go, go to, we did this. And I've heard that for not only at Greenwich, but in other churches. A new person comes and says, here's how we did things in my old church. I really liked it. Let's do it here. And so change is proposed from the outside to the quote unquote insiders. That change is almost always disruptive of some status quo, of some prevailing um, structure or system or way of life. And so, as I've just been thinking about it, <clears throat> you know, if we seek the peace of the city versus changing the city, change often disrupts the peace, right? And so... I got thinking, it seek the peace of the city to which I have called you, Jeremiah said, not seek the peace of the nation, seek the peace of the city. It's like, it's like the, the, the council there in that letter counsels to arena one and arena two, the local and the, the regional, which you could argue is local still, right? If you go back to last week, arena one and arena two, where I live and work, the very people I interact with. Uh, arena two would be kind of the, maybe the area, the, the, the collection of where Greenwich is, okay? So arena one is right here in Haymarket, uh, where I live and work and shop. Arena two would be Greenwich and the surrounding environs from which the Greenwich membership draws, stretching to Manassas, uh, Culpeper, uh, Warrenton, Bealton, um, Noakesville, Haymarket, Gainesville. And so, you know, you could have a way of thinking about that's a, that's a wider geography. Seek the peace of that community. 
doesn't say anything about the nation. I don't, I don't, maybe I'm reading too much into Jeremiah's letter there. And so, so what I've been wrestling with, um, and I regret that, you know, I'm not giving more practical, I, I initially had thought after yesterday talking about the way we conduct ourselves with our character, you know, the way we speak, the way we interact with people, again, arena one and arena two interactions. How do we really change arena three, the society, the systems of society? So as a family has a way of doing things, it gets passed down from generation to generation. So a society has structures and ways of doing things in local regions within do. And so how do we change all that? And so one of the questions I've been wrestling with is are systemic realities, that could be a family, you know, families, you know, so often families struggle, alcohol, abuse, divorce, uh, so, you know, some of these, these certain um, painful realities tumble through the generations. You can watch that. And it's really the sins of the fathers get visited to the third and fourth generation. So that's the biblical way of speaking to what we all observe, right, in our own families. And so when, when we talk systemic realities, and then you start to talk about racism. You might talk about poverty. Uh, you might talk about addiction and abuse and other kinds of um, uh, experiences that seem to perpetuate and have cycles and seem inescapable. And so when people talk about America is systemically racist, I would argue every nation has systemically racist issues because in every country, every nation, there is a prevailing majority and then there will be others who are minorities. And whatever prevailing majority, it might be a religious majority who holds power, it might not be organized around skin color, but it might be around a certain tribe, okay? One certain, uh, many, many nations have, have tribal realities. So it's not an American phenomenon, it's a, it's a human phenomenon. And so human systems, wherever they form, perpetuate certain realities, sometimes positive realities. Winning teams win, right? They keep on winning. Some rich families continue to be rich, poor families continue to be poor. Okay, abusive families continue to abuse. Um, families where, where marriage is held intact and is strong and, and the faith prevails, that, that, that kind of tumbles down. So, so there are systemic realities. But these systemic brokenness, if I could say it that way, which I think are part of the curse. The, the question is, I've got it here on the board, are systemic realities part of the curse that God intends to persist? That's a strong statement. He, in the curse, and when Adam and Eve, this is Genesis 3, when Adam uh, and Eve sin, the serpent is cursed on the, on the, by the, you know, you're going to crawl on your belly and the, the seed of the woman will crush uh, your head. But then Adam, by the sweat of your brow, you will till the earth and thorns and thistles, it will yield. Labor is going to be hard. That's, a, that's part of the curse. 
So people complain about their work all the time. Yeah, guess what? <laughs> That's the way it is. That's the way God intended it. Now, when we find joy in our labor, Ecclesiastes advises that or calls for that. There's nothing better than to, to, find, to eat and drink and find joy in your toil and, 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 and to share a good meal uh, with, with, with your people, okay? To live existentially in this moment with gratitude for God that I have work, that I can labor, that I have some fruit uh, of my labor that I can then uh, exchange for, for, for money and, and, and for, for goods and services. And so there, there's that. But part of the curse is that work, that labor will be hard. And so it's not always farming, right? Uh, people who work in the IT universe, people who work in government, people who work in churches, you know, it, work is hard. And then the, 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 the curse upon uh, the woman. In pain will you bear children, Eve, and your desire will be for your husband, but he will rule over you. And so there's this, this picture then of, of the struggle in relationships. Adam, the struggle of labor, the struggle of work. Uh, to Eve, the struggle in relationships, the struggle in families, you know, the, the pain of childbearing and then the pain of raising children, you know, no, no heartbreaks like a mother's heart breaks uh, for her, her children uh, when things go awry for them. And then the marital struggle, okay? And, and, and so the struggle between man and woman, the struggle between husband and wife, the struggle between the sexes that we see, these are part of the curse. And so are these some of these systemic realities that we observe, what are called systemic racism, it's really systemic majorityism. It's systemic tribalism, okay? We call it racism, but it's really systemic tribalism. We form these moral tribes, these ideological tribes, and yes, sometimes skin color tribes. But it's really the majority because whichever tribe has the power, that's where the oppression comes from. That's where the problems come. If you're an insider, you're you're good, okay? And you're not going to threaten that insider status, which is why Professor Willens at Princeton, as he speaks against the lies of 1619 Project, the historical lie, he's finding colleagues that are afraid to join him because, well, they don't want to lose their job. They don't, they, they're afraid that they won't be able to publish because there's this, the New York Times and this, this publishing guild all of a sudden is buying the lie, Right? Wow. And so when you're the insider, when you've got the power, when you're the tribal majority, then you can start to have your way. And so is America systemically racist? No, it's just a majority white nation. And just, yeah, okay, you're, you're the majority always is just going to kind of try to have the home field advantage. So I don't, I don't dispute that. You know, per, that's an opinion now, okay? It's a pastoral opinion, a personal opinion. <clears throat> What I'm wrestling with is maybe God intends what we observe, these systemic realities, to continue. That we will not, by our human abilities, be able to overcome the curse. If we could, if humans could overcome the effects of the curse by ourselves, then there is no need for the Savior. There is no need for the Christ. Christ died in vain. The persistence of these systemic human realities 
and every culture, everywhere, all the time, <laughs> would seem to indicate an intention of God for them to persist. In Romans chapter 8, <clears throat> Paul writes about the groaning of creation. God subjected it to frustration on purpose. And so there's something in the curse that is to, to prompt us to cry out, God have mercy. And so the curse, I think God may intend to persist in this way. And so the systemically racist issues, the systemically tribal issues, the systemically majority issues that persist in our country and in others are so that we will cry out for another solution. And so this is answering the second question here. Why would this be so? Why would God intend for the curse to prevail in the human community throughout space and time? Why would God have it be this way? So that we will not be proud and think that we can build the Tower of Babel and solve all these problems by ourselves because the core of human sin is that we think we can figure it out. We think we're right. And that's what God wants us to be cured of. <laughs> and so the curse persists. So when we seek the peace of the city, uh, at best, we're just going to mitigate effects of injustice. We can, as a majority, you know, so, so thinking as a white person, a male, a straight male, I can at best mitigate the effects that maybe my straight white male Christian tribe does maybe bring kind of a heavy hand that I'm not even aware of. I acknowledge that's a possibility. And so Jesus says, to whom much is given, much is required. And of him, the, the, the world will demand much more. And so I should take, if I have privilege, if I have resources, if I have influence, I am to use that to be a servant. And that, I think, is consistent with seeking the peace of the city. The degree to which I have voice, the degree to which I have resources, the degree to which I may have some influence, then I should use that influence for the good of others. And so... Uh, rescue the weak and needy, deliver them from the hand of the wicked, the psalmist says. Um, and I'm just going to close with this one today. Again, I think my thoughts are probably a, a little all over the place here, so forgive me for that. But I've been thinking, what unintended consequences of, of critical race theory are going to emerge? There are always unintended consequences right? The unintended consequence of the parents who are very concerned about the safety and health of their children is that they become a little bit hovery and a little bit helicoptery, right? We, that's some of the language, helicopter parents who are kind of hovering over their children to make sure nothing harmful happens. So they go and watch it practice. And we don't want to keep Johnny out of my eye because something, they may get hurt on the ball field at practice. And if Johnny does fall down and gets hit by the ball or something, the, the mother or the father rushes out there and yells at the coach for not being more concerned. The unintended consequence of all that concern for Johnny's health and safety is that when Johnny goes off to college, Johnny doesn't know how to stand on his own two feet. And then somebody comes and raises an idea that Johnny doesn't like, and Johnny then raises his hand and says, that idea that I don't know if I like that, that harms me, that concerns me. And so 
I think, you know, safe spaces and microaggressions and hey, life's a hard place. And so the unintended consequences of helicopter parenting is we raise weak children instead of strong, capable, resilient children. The unintended consequences of critical race theory of saying that we should judge by the skin color is that we're seeing a new segregation on college campuses and elsewhere. There are places where whites may not go. This is a people of color or a black only uh, gathering space. So an unintended consequence of teaching critical race theory and some of these ideas is that we are now moving into a new segregation. Hmm. Who thinks that's a good idea? And the unintended consequence of saying that white people are supremacists and are harmful, well, then we might get a new civil war. <laughs> if, if that's what you're saying I am, then maybe I, and if it is all about power, then I'm going to fight to keep my power. I don't believe, so I'm, let me clarify. I do not believe those things to be true. I believe them to be lies. But as critical race theory says, judge by the color of the skin, not by the content of the character. Critical race theory is reversing the vision of Martin Luther King. It is now said to be racist to seek a colorblind society. So Martin Luther King, arguing from our scriptures and arguing from our founding documents, was seeking a more just society and we began to move in that direction and make uh, legislative and policy gains and, 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 and moving in that direction. Perfectly so, no, but moving in the proper direction. Critical race theory comes along and rejects King's vision of a colorblind society, of judging not by color of skin, but by content of character. And now we're seeking to reverse that. And I'm just wondering, what are the unintended consequences of this ideology, this critical race theory, and what will happen in our society? Because we're still at the front end of this thing, right? You know, I've been talking about it here for what, six or seven weeks, and it's been, you know, around in the public notion for about a year, kind of since the death of George Floyd is when this burst into the mainstream uh, public consciousness. It's been around for much longer, as we've said, but is it now mainstreams? Is critical race theory and the fights over that in school classrooms and the like? I think Stafford County just yesterday or day before, uh, school board said no more, not in our county. <clears throat> and so now you've got these unintended consequences of trying to push this. Now you've got these all this division and all this fighting that's going on. Um, so I'm just curious. I, I just I just offer that maybe to close with. Um, so we'll, we'll close out the, 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 the balance of this week, Thursday and Friday, with a couple more sets of thoughts. If not critical race theory, then what is the solution? And I'm going to try to draw this uh, set of reflections to a close. Pro pro probably time, isn't it? We've been at it for six weeks now. Let me, let me close this time with prayer and ask you to be a person of peace. Maybe not a person of change as much as a person of, of peace. So Lord, hear our prayer. May we be the people of peace that you would intend for us to be. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Help us to be that in our communities, in our homes, in our places of work, where we have occasion uh, to speak well and to honor and to bless and to encourage and to rescue the weak and needy 
and to deliver from the hand of the wicked. May we do it so for your glory. We pray in the name of Jesus, who taught us to pray together, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come and thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation and deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. May the God of peace, the God of all peace, guard your hearts and minds in that peace through Christ Jesus our Lord, now and forevermore. Amen.